Welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. I'm Erin Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. In our first podcast for 2021, we continue our exploration of scene types and conventions from Baroque Opera. So far, we've explored the incantation scene, the sleeping scene, the lament, and the love duet. If you haven't heard those, or would like to brush up on your Baroque opera history before continuing, check out Baroque Banter at the Pinchgut at Home page on the Pinchgut Opera website. Today, we look at a convention that began in early opera at the beginning of the 17th century and persists even to this day in musical theatre. This is what we'll call the music scene, when music itself is the topic and the characters allude to singing or playing, or they actually sing or play in a realistic or stylized way. Often the music scene is a song within the opera, and this is a moment when the audience understands that all the other characters on stage apparently hear the song as it is sung. This provides interesting creative challenges for both composer and librettist, as the song within the opera needs to be somehow set off dramatically or musically from the rest of the opera, which of course is sung throughout. So how to do this? We'll look at some examples today from the 17th and 18th centuries. The music scene in an opera operates much like the play within a play. The most famous example, of course, is from Shakespeare's Hamlet. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king, says Hamlet. That play, called The Murder of Gonzago, is enacted in front of Hamlet's uncle and the court. Now, this deepens the theatrical narrative. It creates something we call a fiction of the second degree. The first level of fiction is the framing drama itself, what we perceive as reality for the characters of Hamlet, while the embedded drama or The Murder of Gonzago, corresponds to a second-level fiction, considered fictional by those characters. There are several levels of distinction to the music scene in 17th and 18th century opera. Let's explore just three degrees of that distinction of the music scene today. Scholars have used various terms to distinguish music scenes. Edward Cohn used realistic singing to indicate that the characters are singing within their fictional world, and he used operatic singing to refer to the rest of the music. Carolyn Abate calls phenomenal the music that the characters on stage hear as music, and from film studies, some people call music and sound effects that the characters hear on stage as real as diegetic music and sounds. I spoke before about three distinctions to the music scene. The first of these three types of music scene is the fairly straightforward song within an opera. If you're an opera lover, you probably already know several of these kinds of songs. 
For example, in the second act of Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro, when Cherubino sings a song and Susanna accompanies him on her guitar, Cherubino, Susanna and the Countess hear a guitar, but we hear Mozart's orchestral representation of a guitar. And then there's Don Giovanni's famous serenade, sung beneath a window, and also various diegetic elements in 19th century opera as well. Realistic songs like this are heard and recognised as such by the audience because of several musical and dramatic clues. Often the characters say something like, let's sing, or now to the duet, and sometimes composers imitate the accompanying instrument, or in fact have the instrument play along in the pit, with the singer miming, as is the case for Don Giovanni's serenade. Second, we have allusions to music and singing within an opera. In the earliest days of public opera, these scenes are completely gratuitous, and they often occur without the slightest reference to the plot. They often appear to simply signal the novelty of opera itself, and play around with the relatively new concept of actors singing and playing their parts. They underline the weirdness that the audience might have felt in navigating the new musical and dramatic language that was sung speech. And third, we have something that Alice Bellini has termed meta-opera. This is when the practice of opera itself is placed within an opera. So we witness the rehearsing, the performance, and all the backstage shenanigans of an imagined opera. We witness stuck-up sopranos, preening castrati, greedy impresarios, and pompous tenors. Meta-opera is very interesting to musicologists in that it sometimes offers us clues to how opera was put together and performed in the past. The music scene occurs in one of the very first operas, Monteverdi's L'Orfeo. L'Orfeo heralded the beginning of the dissemination of a new theatrical style. The debates of Florentine intellectuals in the late 16th and early 17th centuries led them, in their conscious search for newer musical forms and styles, to review the world of ancient Greece. They believed that the rendering of poetry into natural speech-like rhythms and pitches, which was understood to have been Greek practice, would create a new music wholly responsive to the needs of theatre. Strigio, the librettist of L'Orfeo, made a conscious effort to incorporate overt musical imagery into his libretto, with continual references to singing and dancing. This made L'Orfeo just a little more believable to an audience that found the whole thing so odd. A contemporary wrote of the first performance of L'Orfeo that, quote, it should be unusual, as all the actors are to sing their parts, unquote. This also explains why the very first operas were centred around the theme of Orpheus. He was the supreme orator and consummate musician of the ancient world. Audiences would therefore expect him to sing and speak in a heightened, fantastical way. Let's hear now one of Orpheus's songs. This is his great Act Three showpiece from L'Orfeo, Possente Spirito. Faced with the implacable Charon, who guards the underworld, Orpheus undertakes to sway him with his glorious eloquence. Strigio sets Orpheus's plea in the old-fashioned terza rima. This is a classic form of writing poetry in three-line stanzas called terzets, which are interlinked by their rhyming pattern. They use the ending sound from each terzet's middle line as the first and third of the next, creating a pattern ABA, BCB, 
CDC, DED, and so on. Terza Rima was Dante's verse form in the Divine Comedy, so it had a noble pedigree, perfectly fitting its place in the drama here. Poetry in Terza Rima was normally sung to a standard aria, analogous to the Kitharodic Normos, or a song sung to a lyre or kitara, just as Orpheus would have done in ancient Greece. Monteverdi suggested elaborate embellishments for this aria, and this gives us the heightened sense of the virtuosity of the great Orpheus. Each strophe, as was traditional, varies the aria differently. Between lines, the composer inserts short interludes for violins, cornetti, and a double harp over a bass, simulating the flourishes a kitharist might have fingered and strummed. Between strophes, Monteverdi interpolated three or four briefs of instrumental music, as did his predecessors when improvising on standard aria forms. Monteverdi leaves the aria unembellished only in the sixth strophe. Here is the first song within an opera in musical history. Come 
That was Mark Tucker singing the role of Orfeo, or Orpheus, with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by Anthony Walker from Pinchgut's 2005 production. After this elaborate set piece, Charon says to Orpheus, I am indeed rather charmed, my heart delighted, O unhappy singer, by your lament and your song. But far, ah, far from this breast be pity, a sentiment unworthy of my dignity. This response signalled to the audience that they have in fact heard a song, and Monteverdi's embellishments heighten the speech-song quality in order to confer the quality of eloquence and decoration that audiences would have associated with their idea of Orpheus. L'Orfeo was a court opera, destined only for courtiers, but later, when opera went public, music scenes were inserted into many of the shows that filled the theatres that proliferated all over the Italian peninsula in the 1630s and, from the 1660s, north of the Alps into Europe. The earliest composers and librettists, like Monteverdi and Strigio, tended to introduce songs quite self-consciously into their operas as formal arias, just like Possenti Spirito, and they used very formal poetic schemes, like the Terza Rima. But, as Ellen Roseanne notes, for later composers like Cavalli, operatic verisimilitude had long since accommodated the formal aria as a kind of normal means of communication on the opera stage. So the song within the opera was expanded to be used for elaborate scenes that increased psychological or dramatic tension. The song might break off suddenly as the singer's lute breaks a string, or perhaps another character discovered the song being sung to another lover and interrupts them, and so on. Composers and librettists enjoyed playing with formal conventions here. But sometimes the music scene was nothing more than a dig at musicians, opera singers, and also opera goers. Here is 
One such gratuitous allusion to music, as played out in that veritable treasure trove of operatic conventions, Cavalli's Giazzone from 1649. Alinda has met Ercole, who's a soldier. She flirts with him and is unhappy that he doesn't have any sexy scars. She continues, Now if only you were a fine singer and musician, how that would please my heart. He answers, Musician? Well, there's my art, singing in harmony. She says, Oh, well, then I like you so much more. But what voice are you? What register do you sing in? He answers, Can't you hear me? I'm a soprano. She and the audience are incredulous, doesn't make any sense. You're not a castrato, are you? She asks. No, I swear, he says. Then they break out into a love duet, which is apparently also a song, or at least song-like. Let two hearts pass the time in pleasure and singing, they sing. So here, the music scene is nothing but a humorous reference to the new culture of opera, to singers and voice types, to the gender-bending weirdness of castrati, and it also gives the performers an opportunity to improvise in a comic vein. Here is Alexandra Omens as Alinda and Nicholas Dinopoulos as Ercole from Cavalli's Giazzone with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by myself from the keyboard.
That was Alexandra Omens as Alinda and Nicholas Dinopoulos as Ercole from Cavalli's Giazzone with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself from the keyboard. Let's return now to the song within the opera. The most classic form this took was the serenade. This was a courting ritual that had been around for centuries. Generally, it was a song sung from a lover to his lady love. It was generally considered an evening piece, as opposed to an aubade, which was a love song performed in the morning. Generally, the serenader was in the street below, and the one being courted was in a window high above the street. One of the most famous serenades in operatic history is that performed by Don Giovanni in Mozart's opera of the same name, and performed to the realistic sound of the mandolin, which in the 18th century was the preferred serenading instrument of choice. But the most famous serenade in Italian of 18th century opera was actually not the serenade from Don Giovanni, but rather a beautiful serenade called Saper Bramate from Paisiello's Barber of Seville. It was one of the great hit tunes of the 18th century. You can hear it appropriately and very effectively in the soundtrack to Stanley Kubrick's great period film from 1975, Barry Lyndon. If you haven't seen this film, I highly recommend it. Another famous serenade from the 18th century that was particularly popular in the French world all the way up to the 20th century was Tandis que tu sommeilles. This is where from Gretry's L'Amant Jaloux. All the serenades I've mentioned feature the accompaniment of a mandolin. Mozart and Paisiello have the mandolin play from the orchestra in the space between the audience and the stage. But in Gretry's version, for the first time and for extra realism, the singer and the mandolin both perform offstage, as if they're outside on the street serenading. The orchestra plays pizzicato discreetly. Here is Andrew Goodwin as Florival, with myself conducting the Auction of the Antipodes in Tandis que tu sommeilles from Gretry's L'Amant Jaloux.
That was Andrew Goodwin as Florival, with myself conducting the Orchestra of the Antipodes from Pinchgut's 2015 production of Gretry's Lemon Jaloux. We've heard music as a gratuitous reference that pokes fun at the conventions of singers and opera goers, and we've also heard a few songs within the opera as well. Let's listen now to some meta-opera. That's music and drama that purports to present to the audience the real-time shenanigans of opera singers, directors, and coaches. Here, we are supposed to be watching the performance or rehearsal of opera. Alice Bellini, in a great article called Music and Music, the last word is in inadverted commas, in 18th century meta-operatic scores, surveys the wealth of meta-opera that occurs in 18th century opera in particular. We encounter maestros conducting orchestras, directors with recalcitrant actors, and greedy impresarios trying to fleece their clients and their audiences. There are digs above all at the conventions and excesses of Italian opera and Italian opera singers, and we see and hear the preening egotistical behaviour of singers as brutally satirised by composer and librettist. We're also witness to singing teachers and coaches working with singers. Now this is particularly interesting to us, as we know that many 18th century singers weren't able to read music at all. These were the so-called orecchianti, literally eras, who were adept at picking up music astonishingly quickly. A singer called Banti, for example, was musically illiterate. But after hearing an aria once played over, and that but indifferently, she sang it most divinely, according to a contemporary. Salieri once played a 132-bar-long Alleluia for her three times in 1785, and afterwards she sang it back note-perfect and with the appropriate expression. In 1768, Leopold Mozart wrote that some of the cast of his son's La Finta Semplice could only learn from Wolfgang, as they learnt everything by ear and couldn't read music. Imitative pedagogy, like what we've just heard from Salieri and from the young Mozart, is most often evident in the portrayal of singing lessons or rehearsals in 18th century comic opera. For example, Salieri's 1781 Der Rauchfangkehrer, or The Chimney Sweep, has a fake maestro called Volpino, who's really a hustling chimney sweep with a musical bent, correct the diction of his students and suggest cadenzas and trills, which are dutifully repeated by the two singers. Der Rauchfangkehrer was the very first singspiel at the Burgtheater in Vienna. Mozart wrote the second singspiel, The Abduction from the Seraglio there, for the same singers. In Salieri's opera, we are introduced to the character of the chimney sweep Volpino when he comes across a forte piano in a room. He knows that the rich mother and daughter, Mrs. Hawke and Miss Hawke, are both aspiring opera singers. So, in order to capture their attention, in order to swindle them, he sings in an Italian aria, hoping that their attention is piqued. As the opera is in German, this switch to Italian immediately indicates that we have a song within the opera. Salieri even indicates the sound of the forte piano with pizzicato strings in the orchestra. Here is Stuart Haycock as Volpino with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself from the forte piano in an aria from The Chimney Sweep by Salieri. There's a moment when the character tries out the forte piano and diegetically you can hear me play a prelude which Stuart mimed.
That was Stuart Haycock as Volpino with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself in a selection from The Chimney Sweep by Salieri. Once Volpino, the chimney sweep, has caught the attention of the mother and the daughter with his singing, he pretends that he's an Italian maestro and he offers to coach them. Salieri's score has two virtuosic arias for mother and daughter and both are in Italian. They seem to satirise the conventions and delivery of Italian opera but both are very fine arias, very similar to what you might hear in opera in Vienna in 781. You'll hear in these excerpts that Volpino corrects their diction occasionally and even offers suggestions for trills or condensers. All of these are indicated in the score by Salieri. It's a great example of meta-opera, of putting on the conventions of opera performance and rehearsal right onto the opera stage. Here is the aria for the mother, Mrs. Hawke, sung by Amelia Ferrugia with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by myself. I wish I could sing myself to a higher status. I do need a warm up.
That was Amelia Ferrugia with the Auction of the Antipodes, conducted by myself in a performance of an aria from The Chimney Sweep by Salieri. Miss Hawke, the daughter, now immediately proffers her own skill to the pretend maestro. She chooses not a fast aria, but a contrasting slower one. This beautiful piece is less satirical now, and there's more emphasis given by Salieri to the beautiful Italian cantabile that the Viennese adored. The original Miss Hawke was the great singer Caterina Cavalieri, who created the role of Costanza in Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of Baroque Banter. This is Erin Halliard signing off. I hope to see you soon in the theatre. And now, here is Janet Todd in the role of Miss Hawke, with the Orchard of the Antipodes conducted by myself in an aria from Salieri's The Chimney Sweep. Just <laughs> 